Hello, and welcome to Co-op Cast, where game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly talk about cooperative board games. Join us each week as we break down one game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, hey, hey. And welcome to episode 13 of Co-op Cast. 13, our lucky episode. That's right, and yours too, because this week we're going to be discussing Descent with the Road to Legend app. Right, so if you haven't heard of this, this is a uh, an app-based, I won't say expansion, but a, a fully cooperative variant to the Descent 2nd Edition rule set. It uses the core set and whatever expansions you've uh, bought, and also has some unlockable extra materials online through the app, and lets you play Descent as a fully cooperative game instead of in its usual form, where one of you plays the Overlord and one of you plays, or one or more of you play the Heroes. And one of the cool things they did is put this out completely free for anybody who owns Descent 2nd Edition already. So if you already own the game, you already have this fully playable version. And they even redid the rules specifically for the cooperative variant. So to get into the theme a little bit, it's not too different than if you've played regular Descent. This is set in Fantasy Flight's uh, proprietary setting, Terranoth. Which has been criticized by many people, and I, I somewhat agree for being a bit of a generic uh, fantasy setting. But it's the same setting as the Runebound series of games, uh, the Rune Wars series, the new Rune Wars miniature game. So they're definitely trying to get as much as they can out of this theme. And in this game, uh, just like in the Descent regular campaigns, you're a group of heroes trying to defeat some sort of bad elements. In the first campaign you can get, you're going against Splig, who's a goblin boss. Um, and then the other free campaign you can get without paying extra on the app is uh, Kindred Fire, and you're going against a fire wizard who's trying to defeat a cultist, basically. But besides that, pretty standard dungeon crawl, D&D-ish kind of storyline, where you're helping people with random things, uh, destroying monsters, threatening townsfolk, and eventually standing up to some big boss. Cool. Now I'm going to quickly go over the rules. First of all, when you get into the scenario, you have to pick whether you want to do normal mode or hard mode, and then you're going to get into your quest, and each quest is basically a one-off mission. Now, throughout the course of the mission, you're going to activate, alternating with the enemies, you're going to activate your characters. So any player who is playing in the game can activate one character, and then the AI will tell you which enemy characters to activate. Then the other player, another player is going to activate, and then AI back and forth until both sides run out. If one runs out before the others, so if you have only two heroes and three AI, the AI is just going to keep going after all the heroes have acted. So on a player's turn, they're going to activate and they're going to take two actions. Basic actions are things like moving, attacking, resting, and searching. Uh, They can also open doors. So those are basic actions they can take when somebody gets knocked out. There are a couple of other actions they can take. You can either revive another hero in your party for one action, or they can stand up themselves, but it'll take both of their actions. And so this is kind of how the players lose in the game. The players can lose by running out of morale. And every time one of the players is knocked out, they lose one morale. And if their morale ever runs out and they get knocked out again, that's when the players are going to lose that quest that they are on. So let me discuss attacking because that is probably the most interesting part of what you do. You're basically going to roll a number of dice equal to whatever your equipment say you have. Usually you're going to roll one blue dice, 
along with a red or yellow or any combination of red and yellow dice you add on to them. The blue dice is kind of the basic dice. Dice give you a couple pieces of information. It gives you range, it gives you amount of damage done, and it might even give you some surges as well. The blue dice is the basic dice, and it also has a miss sign on it. So if you roll an X on the blue dice, that will completely negate your attack, no matter what else you had on any of your other dice. And then you're going to roll defense for the enemy as well. That'll cancel some of the hits that you did. At the end of the round, there may be peril effects that happen. Basically, what happens is the longer you take to complete the mission, the worse and worse those peril effects get. So the game pushes you to complete your objectives faster. And that is the way the game works. It's going to give you a basic objective when you come in. When you complete that, it'll give you another objective potentially, or potentially you'll have won the quest. And so you go through a couple of different objectives that get revealed to you as you're playing through the campaign. After you're done with a quest, then you can go back to town, buy equipment, level your characters up, and then get ready to go on to your next quest. So, Mike, did you have any more to add to that? No, uh, that's great. I think we can get right into our discussion of uh, the mechanics and uh, pieces of the game that we like and maybe don't like so much. If you have not listened to any episodes before, well, please go back and do so. But... Uh, Our format is that we are going to take turns going through key items and aspects of the game that we recognize, five each, starting with the smallest and building to the biggest, and for each, uh, it could be a pro, could be a con, could be somewhere in between. So, Peter, why don't you start off with your uh, number five, your lowest one? One aspect of the app that I really like is that it keeps all your progress for you. So like I said, after each of your quests, you're going to go back to town. You're going to buy items. It'll tell you exactly which items are available for you to buy. You're going to sell items. It tells you the price, you know, how much gold you have on hand. It tells you how much experience you have. It even tells you exactly how you can level up your character and progress your character based on what experience you have. So I like the fact that in a lot of these campaign games, you have to have some kind of book or external app, or something else to keep track of all that information. And with the Descent app, it actually keeps all that information for you from quest to quest. That's a great call. Uh, That actually didn't make my list, but as you're saying it, I feel like it should have. I have, I think, three or four different games going on concurrently right now. A couple solo ones, one with my five-year-old son and one with my wife. And yeah, the fact that I don't have to keep decks together, really organize much, and everything's saved in the app, and that I can so quickly set up my characters again because there's not that much involved in it is pretty fantastic. So good call on that, Peter. Cool. So Mike, what's your number five? My number five is a con, but a fairly small one. That's why it's number five. And that is uh, the amount of replayability and content, at least when you're just looking at the cooperative experience for the core box of the game. So there's uh, eight side quests, And basically you'll do between uh, one and three side quests in between each main mission in uh, each campaign. And in the, you know, three times I've played through, I think, so far, I've definitely started to see many of the same side quests. And I think at this point I've seen all of them. So with just the core game, I'd have to buy some more content to actually start varying up the quests I'll see. And similarly, the uh, the free campaigns, the Goblin one and the, the Kindred Fire one, Neither of those has a ton of extra story quests. I think the Goblin one is only three. So it's not that many varied missions. But the reason this is number five, and really it's almost more of a mix than a con, is that this is all free. 
you know, you're getting a, a great one versus many game in Descent Second Edition, and this is just extra icing on the cake with a cooperative experience that you get for free just by downloading the app. Now, if you're buying Descent Second Edition and using the app because the only way you ever want to play the game is cooperative, then you're looking at maybe not such a great value. But if you ever think you'll play the one versus many, then it's a fantastic deal. Well, and I got to be honest, I don't know that I would play it one versus many anymore. That is not the kind of game that I typically like to play. Obviously, we like co-ops. That's why we're doing the podcast. I don't know. I think I might actually buy it. I mean, when you look at the content compared to something like Mansions of Madness, which has three or four missions, uh, or what is it, five in the base box? Yeah, four or five. And that's true. It's definitely better value than Mansions of Madness. And I think Mansions is a more expensive game as well. Yeah, so I mean, I do think you're getting value out of it. To be honest, I know there is one campaign that unlocks if you buy a Descent expansion, and I'm thinking about buying the Descent expansion just to play it cooperatively in this, as well as I know there are a couple of other purchasable expansions you can buy in-app purchases for this Descent Road to Legend expansion, which just uses the content you already have, but creates a different experience, and I'm looking at buying those as well. Yeah, I've heard very good things about the uh, the Delve expansion especially. And you're right, those are only like $5. So I'll change my number five to a mixed. It's, it's not a con. You, you are getting a good amount of stuff, even if you only want to uh, do it cooperatively. So, Peter, what's your number four? So my number four is that this game is very combat heavy. Unlike a game like Mansions of Madness, which I compared this to very favorably because both apps were made by Fantasy Flight and they have a lot of similar aspects. You know, you're clicking on doors to open them. The app controls the AI. Unlike Mansions of Madness, which I think is more heavily story and puzzle based, this game is very combat heavy both to its pro and its con. I do think sometimes you just see so much combat that, you know, it's like, okay, I want to get on to the next thing. And the story isn't really what's driving you forward. It's the mechanics of the combat and facing new puzzles and challenges as the enemies come at you in different ways and in different groups. But it is basically combat from front to back as you start getting into that campaign. Yeah, that's a good call. My number four is a pro... And I'll get to the combat a little bit later. Sure. Uh, But yeah, my number four is the exploration aspect. So a lot of the cooperative dungeon crawlers you'll see have you build the entire map ahead of time, like Sword and Sorcery does that. And you'll still have like a little bit of exploration, but in general, you're, you're seeing at least what the entire kind of map layout is ahead of time. With this one, again, because of the app... As you open each door, you get to see entirely new tiles, you get to see what new enemies await you, you get some flavor text, the app has like cool music going. Uh, When you search the little search tokens, as I've been exploring the app more, I see crazier results, like this one had uh, like a pack of worms that dug into my character and damaged him every couple of turns for the rest of the, uh, the mission. So there's some fun stuff to discover, and I think the theme of a dungeon crawler a cooperative dungeon crawler comes across more strongly because of the app. And and I agree with your favorable comparison theme wise to uh, mansions of madness. Cool. Well, my number three is actually going to lead into our design discussion. Unfortunately, it's not my number one, but it's the dice combat in the game with just three different types of attack dice 
and three different types of defensive dice, you really can get some neat combinations. So let me get back into the three characteristics of a dice. First, it tells you range. So if you have a ranged attack, you add up the number of spaces that you are attacking away, and you need to roll at least that much range on the dice or you miss them. The other thing it has is number of hits or damage on it, and that's countered by the defense's number of blocks or shields on it. And the third thing, which is the most interesting part of what the dice give you, are these surges. And the surges are what triggers your character's special abilities. So weapons might have special abilities, your characters might have special abilities that trigger off of surges. So it's really, with just one dice face, the fact that there are these customized dice, and they have all three pieces of information on the same dice face, you really do have different probabilities based on the dice that can lead to different weapons feeling different from each other. So I think their dice combat, they do a really good job with that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, too. Uh, But now for my number three, which I would say is a bit of a con, although it's kind of close to the middle, is uh, how tactical the combat of this game is. And when I say how tactical, what I mean is that it's not as tactical as I might like. It's a pretty simple combat system, and the powers that the players have, at least with the classes available in the core set, don't have a lot of positioning or kind of interesting effects to them. Like, you aren't pulling monsters, you aren't pushing monsters, there aren't really environmental hazards to shove them into or that kind of stuff. It's fairly basic, and usually on my turn, I pretty much know exactly what I'm going to do, and it seems pretty obvious. I move over and I smack them, or I get within range and I shoot them, and that's about it. And it's, it's not terrible. The combat is very fast, it's accessible, it's fun. But I've been playing a lot of Gloomhaven, a lot of uh, Swords and Sorcery, and those games and some other dungeon crawlers have much more interesting tactical combat with a lot more options available to the player and a lot cooler kind of varied powers. And this game uh, doesn't quite get to that level. Not terrible, but a little bit simple for my taste. No, I agree. And that was something I meant to mention during my number four, which is combat heavy. And that's part of the reason I said it kind of gets samey after a while. You just want to get through that wave of monsters. Because that's the other thing. As you kill these monsters at the end of each round, a lot of times they're going to just respawn again. So the objective of the mission isn't really to kill the monsters in front of you a lot of times. It's to get to this checkpoint and perform a skill check, which we didn't really get into. But basically, you're just going to do a dice check to see if you either destroy a pile of bones or open a door or whatever other thing they put in front of you. So even though the game has a lot of combat, it's not necessarily combat focused. In that way, because again, everything you kill typically tends to respawn again at the end of the round. I mean, that does vary more the more scenarios you play, but yeah, a lot of them definitely have that mechanic. Uh, What's your number two, Peter? So my number two is the class variety, and this is both a pro and a con for me. There are the four major tropes you have in fantasy between a roguelike character, you have a wizard-type character... You have a range-type character, and you have a warrior, tanky-type character. Within each of those, there are two different subclasses, so you can get a little variety in there, which is good, but I do think it has a problem that a lot of these games have, which are some classes are just better than others, some classes are worse than others. But I do think there is a nice variety in there. I do think the characters play differently and feel different as you're playing them. So that is the pro side of it, is they do have a lot of cool leveling and the leveling's pretty easy you just get new cards for their skills and it'll tell you how to use that skill and so it's pretty easy to level up your character the choices are kind of neat 
you do feel like you're getting better as the game goes on, but I don't know that the balance is quite right. Yeah, that, that was one of my honorable mentions. And I'll say it's, it's more of a pro for me because I've played almost all of the classes now. And, and again, just the classes in the core set. I think almost every expansion uh, offers several new classes. But with just the core set, really only the Thief class is underpowered in my experience. Both of the fighter classes have been good. Both of the wizard classes are great. The cleric class is strong. I haven't played the archer class, but it looked pretty good. Definitely way better than the, uh, the Thief so I'm not quite as concerned with the balance as long as you don't play with that one out of eight classes, which does still give you a lot of options in just the core set. Cool. So what's your number two? My number two is a, a pretty big pro, and that's how how simply and cleanly the game handles enemy AI, the actions and activations of the enemies uh, within the app. So just to kind of clarify, Peter didn't get into this too much with the quick rules explanation. But the AI in this game, one group of enemies will activate, as he said, and it'll give a series of actions for the minions and a series of actions for the master, the the red, more powerful version of that uh, group of monsters, if there is one. And the interesting thing is the app does not track where the heroes are or the monsters are. It doesn't keep track of any of that nitty gritty stuff. So the the monster AI is giving you generic actions the monster will try to do if they can. And if you can't do the first bullet point, you go down to the second one. If you can't do the second one, you go down to the third one. Which sounds like it might be a mess, but it works incredibly well with just a few concepts. There's the concept of spotting, which basically just means the monster tries to get within three spaces of the closest hero. And uh, engaging, which means they try to get next to you. And attacking, that right there pretty much fills up the vast majority of the actions monsters can take. But they'll have a little special power that applies to them every uh, time they activate. So this activation, they might poison you. Uh, The next activation, they might give you disease. The next activation, they might throw you. So with just a few moving parts that's very clean and very simple to play in the game, you get a nice amount of variety. Really, I'd I'd compare it favorably. It's, It's almost as much as in Gloomhaven's enemy activation decks... But God, with the app, it is so much faster and so much simpler. Whereas uh, Gloomhaven, you know, you have tons of card decks you're you're managing, and it's it's definitely a little bit tougher. A little sneak peek to next week's episode where we're yeah covering yeah Gloomhaven. sorry not not trying to give away anything. <laughs> How about you, Peter? What's uh? Well, I guess oh wow, we're on your number one, aren't we? Or wait, scratch everything I just said. Feel free to respond to what I was talking about if you want to. No, no, I'm going to respond with my number one, which is that the app does a good job of running the AI. I totally agree with you. Um, And I actually put a couple different things in here, too, because it also goes back to one of your earlier ones. I think it was number four, where when you open a door, it reveals a new room and everything's in it. And I also like, and I forget who was talking about this earlier, that when you complete an objective, it gives you a new objective. So you don't even know what's coming next. You don't know where the enemies are going to pop out of. You don't know if you finish the campaign, you know, the quest or not when you're done completing the next objective. Sometimes it'll give you something new. Sometimes it'll say, hey, you won. Good job. So it's kind of neat how the app keeps you in suspense as you're playing through the campaign. And I do like that. I know we talked a little bit about Alien last week where there's a lot of tension in the game. I think the app increases the tension in this game and in a good way, in the best possible way. So because the AI is going to act erratically, because every time you open a door, you never know what's going to be on the other side, because when you complete a challenge in the quest, you never know what the next challenge is going to be. And so I really think that AI does a good job of keeping you in the dark 
and revealing secrets in the best possible way. Yeah, and it's worth noting that while there isn't a, a ton of variety in the monsters in the core set, it still feels pretty varied. You'll see different monsters in the missions as you play them. And the second you start adding expansions in, you lock in and you own those expansions and you get a ton more monsters and kind of changing up the monsters you'll see in the same quest. So that would, again, kind of go against my first point that the replayability might be kind of low. All right, so drumroll, Mike, what's your number one? Well, you already mentioned it. We, we sort of traded a bit again near the bottom. Uh, but mine is the dice-based combat. Now, it's weird that this is my number one, and it is a pro. But I, I say it's weird because I really love this dice-based combat, but it's better in Imperial Assault, which uses pretty much the exact same dice-based combat, but with a few more dice types. It's better in Imperial Assault, so while I still think it's a great pro here, it's an even bigger pro in Imperial Assault. The big thing with Imperial Assault is that a lot more attacks are ranged. And the most interesting thing going on here is the range for me. Because, and I think Doom did this as well, the first edition of Doom. How range works is, as Peter said, the dice will have range on them and then also have attacks and and lightning bolts, surges, that kind of stuff. But generally, the higher range results have less damage and the lower range results have more damage. And again, this is bigger an effect in Imperial Assault, but it's still present here as well. So the cool thing is that with no extra rules, with no extra like tables looking up, with no minimum and maximum range, the game automatically models how if you're closer to somebody, you're going to get a more deadly kind of point-blank shot. And if you're farther away, you're going to get a weaker shot. And on top of that, uh, as Peter mentioned, just to kind of back up what you already said, um... The icons are really clear with a lot of stuff that could seem distracting going on in the dice. It's still very easy. My five-year-old will be able to tell me how much damage he got, subtract the enemy shields, count his surges and their effects, and immediately tell me what's going on very quickly. And just the use of surges is great because you've got stuff on your character sometimes, you've got skills, you've got surges on the weapon itself, And then you've also always got the option to spend a surge to get rid of one of your stamina and be able to do more things later on. So I love the dice-based combat, the multitude of results it models with very little rules overhead. Makes it super simple even for a five-year-old to resolve uh, combat. Yeah, it's funny. You combine kind of two of my earlier ones into yours, and I combine two of mine into uh, my number one. So we had the same ideas here, just in different order again. It's funny because a lot of times we try not to talk about things ahead of time because we don't want our list to be too similar. But I think it's good that we're drawing the same conclusions, even with this game, which I think we've only played once together. Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of these games, I think we get into kind of a group think potentially. But this one, I've played probably a dozen plays without you and only played, I think, once or twice with you. But yeah, we, we still had, it sounds like, very similar experiences with it. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, guys, we're not talking about this ahead of time. That's not why our lists come out the same. But it's interesting that we do come up with, you know, a lot of the same things in our top five. And I think that goes to the fact that, you know, we are hitting the top five things, or at least trying to, with each of these games. Sure. So Peter, uh, recommendations overall for the game or final thoughts? I mean, I really like it. I know you like Imperial Assault better, and I do agree that it has some interesting things in the Imperial Assault combat that's a little bit better. I agree that ranged is much more interesting than melee combat. I can't wait to see what they do with it. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be a direct port 
as far as Imperial Assault goes because they're spending so much time on it. So I think they are trying to do something new and creative. But as far as getting back to Descent goes, I like the fantasy theme better. Don't get me wrong. I love Star Wars. But I just love fantasy, even if it is generic fantasy, where you're going through witches, wizards, dragons, those kind of things. The combat is very fun. I'm I'm having a hard time deciding whether I like this better or Mansions of Madness better. That'll tell you how much I like it because Mansions of Madness is such a enthralling story, but I think the gameplay here is better. And I think the app does just as good a job as it does in Mansions of Madness. So if you've played Mansions of Madness and you like that, I think you're going to like this as well as long as the heavy combat doesn't bother you. Certainly, if you have Descent 2nd Edition already, there is no reason not to try this. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So how about you, Mike? I'll I'll back up what you're saying. Um, Now, for me, I I do think Imperial Assault has a better rule set pretty much across the board because it is an evolution of the system. So, man, if, if they actually come out with the app like they think they might at the end of this year, I'll be playing the heck out of that game. Because I love fantasy, but I, I really love Star Wars. And the other thing is I have so many dungeon-crawling cooperative you know, games, I don't need one more necessarily. That being said, I, I really like this game. I also recommend it. I'm not sure if I would say it's a better dungeon-crawler than Sword and Sorcery or Gloomhaven, the most recent ones we've been playing. But it does have, over either of them, just the quick accessibility, the ease of playing... The setup is faster, the teardown is faster, it tracks your characters for you. Again, I'm playing it with my five-year-old. I would never put Sword and Sorcery or Gloomhaven anywhere near him until he's got a whole bunch of years on top of what he has now. So yeah, it's it's a great, really great dungeon crawl experience. I think Imperial Assault will be better, but I'm fully happy with this one while we have it. Absolutely. Alright, so let's get into our design discussion. This week we're going to talk about custom dice. I just want to get things started by asking you some questions here, Mike. What are some pros and cons, do you think, about custom dice over just using normal D6s? Sure. I'll, uh, I'll look at it from two perspectives. One is from a, a gameplay mechanics and kind of gameplay design perspective, and the other one is from a manufacturing and producing games perspective. In terms of design and mechanics, I think... Uh, a pro is, as Descent models, for example, you can have a lot of interesting things going on with dice. You can have a larger variety of results without needing to have complex rule sets, without needing to have war game style uh, tables to check for what these results mean. You get a lot of bang for your buck in a, in a small space. On a negative for the design aspect, I would say uh, you can get into the danger of the icons being hard to understand or hard to see, forcing people to look up what the icons mean if you have too many or too many varied results from them. And trying to figure out what the symbols mean can be a distraction instead of letting the gameplay go smoothly. Now from the production standpoint, I think it's mostly cons. I don't know a ton about the price, but we've talked about this with uh, some of the people working on our games, and it definitely is a sticking point. Clearly, custom dice cost more. I don't think they cost quite as much more as they used to, but still, they are certainly an added expense for your game. So you're looking at a, a negative there. And then on top of that, something I noticed, and maybe this is just Fantasy Flight, but they're certainly doing it. 
I think because custom dice are more expensive, game producers are less likely to include a lot of them in a game until you run into things like an Imperial Assault and uh, Descent where you don't really have enough dice to do as much as you would like to unless you buy an extra set. Same thing with uh, Galaxy Defenders and Sword and Sorcery. They have almost enough dice, but you got to pass them all around. If we had an extra set or two, it would be way easier to play. Conan, if you didn't get the Kickstarter edition, didn't have quite as many dice as you would like. There's a lot of games where they aren't providing enough dice, and I just have to assume that's because custom dice are expensive, so they can't put in 30 or 40 or 50 D6s like games often do because that's cheap and uh, doesn't really add much to the price tag. Yeah, that second point you brought up is really good because I thought of cost as a con, but I never thought of it in the context you were saying where they're not providing as many in the game. And to take that a step further, even if the game doesn't provide enough, if it's normal D6s, you just run to another game and pull some out and add them in. So even if they don't provide enough dice in the game, you can still always have enough dice if you want. Whereas if they're custom D6s, you have to buy those specific custom D6s. No, definitely. But I do agree with your pros also in that really you can do a lot of complex things with custom dice that you could never do with a regular D6. You couldn't put three pieces of information on a normal D6. And even when you look at custom dice that don't do a lot, for example, you may have two ones on two different sides of a dice, two twos on two different sides, and two threes. That changes the probability from a normal one to six curve that you would normally have. So even if the custom dice aren't using complex symbols, I think you can change probabilities, you can change perceptions by changing what numbers and what values are on the sides of dice as well. So I do think it gives you a lot of design space, but I am afraid that for new designers specifically, you get into this, oh, I got to have custom dice, and you don't realize that you're actually making your game harder to pitch to a publisher because they are less likely, especially, I mean, if you look at Descent, for example, if this wasn't Fantasy Flight, they have three different molds for custom dice, three different defensive dice, three different attack dice. I mean, selling that to a publisher is going to be a really tough sell. Yeah, and in the end, I think you have to consider, does your game design actually need the custom dice or is there a cleaner, simpler way to do it? Because I don't see much need to just include custom dice just to do it. If it's simple enough, you can just say, okay, four, five, six hits, one, two, three doesn't. <laughs> you don't need a custom die that has three hit sides and three blank sides. Just roll regular dice, do it like Arkham Horror or Eldritar do, and, and move on with your life, you know? Well, exactly. And there are cool things you can do with regular dice as well. I just played this game, Unicornus Knights, and it has a very unique combat system that I've never seen before. Every character hits on different numbers, misses on different numbers, and blocks them on different numbers. And so games like that or Assault on Doomrock, if you don't think you can do cool things with regular D6s, look at those two games as examples of things you can do which are outside of the norm. So I do think you can use regular D6s in unique ways. You just have to be more creative with them. Sure. Other ones I would call out Mythic Battles Pantheon, which is supposed to be delivering pretty soon. And hey, we kickstarted it, so we'll have some fun to play with that. I guess it, it technically has custom D6s, but really it's just a regular D6 where the 6 is a miss. But that has a really cool, interesting way it does its combat system. Uh, one that I'm thinking about kickstarting right now that has a solo and cooperative variance is Root, 
and that game uses D4s, although they've changed it to custom D12. So again, I guess there are more custom dice than you might expect. But it uses D4s in a really interesting combat system that's incredibly simple, resolves combat in a moment, but has very different results depending on how many units are on the attacking and defending side. I, I guess just using those two examples, there are clearly more custom dice than I think, and even sort of oddly customized dice four regular dice just to get a slightly different effect and make that effect simple, like turning the six into a blank just to make it easier to teach the game. Yeah, and the other thing you can consider if you're using normal dice and not custom dice is maybe scaling up the dice. So something like Pathfinder Adventure Card Game did this, where you could roll a d6 early on. As you get more powerful, you could roll a d8, then a d10, d12. Certainly, again, it's going to be a little bit harder sell to publishers because you're talking about lots of different types of dice. But at the same time, I don't think it's going to be as hard as trying to sell them on four or five different custom dice molds. Yeah, although I'll say uh, like stepping up the dice like that while still using normal dice can be problematic because you get more variance in the results. You know, if you look at D&D and that whole D20 system of role-playing games, a D20 is such a a crazy crapshoot, you know, like you could be awesome at something and hit on like a five or more and you're rolling this D20 die that can give you a different result. A game that used custom dice with still changing the dice was uh, the old racing game, Formula Day, which became uh, Formula D. And I always really liked that because, yes, they had regular D4s, D6s, D8s, D10s, and I think D20s for the movement, but they adjusted the numbers so you would always pretty much be moving faster with the fifth gear die than you were with the fourth gear die because they had customized dice, even though they seemed like pretty much normal dice that had changed the range of values to ensure it had the distribution that would fit the thing they were going for. Yeah, and that's a really neat way to do things as well. And the other thing is, obviously you could use cards for combat, you could use chip pulls for combat. We've seen a lot of different things. The benefits of dice, though, is it's quick, it's easy, it's tactile. People like having dice in their hands, so don't shy away from dice. And even quite a few dice if you're using non-custom dice. Because people think, oh, I'm rolling a, a bucket full of dice. That means there's a lot of luck and variance in the game. It actually doesn't. It means you're actually going to get closer to the norm. The more dice you roll, the more likely it's going to be to get to a standard result. Yeah, that's a good call. I do have to do a shout out to some of my favorite custom dice. We talked about them a little bit in our Dresden Files card game uh, review a while back. But the, the fudge dice that are used in that and also in the, the Fate RPG system... I love those dice. Uh, for those who don't know them, it's two minuses, two blanks, and two pluses. And you usually roll, I think, four of them. And it's just nice because it tends to work towards a, a, a middle, because you're going to get a lot of blanks or pluses and minuses canceling each other out. And you get a nice distribution of uh, probability for the extremes on either side. So it works great in uh, the Fate RPG. I know this is co-op board games and not RPGs, but I always really loved that resolution, because if I have a five strength and I'm trying to do a five challenge, I know really easily that I have a pretty good chance of making that happen, whereas again, in like a D20 system, the the die might be more varied in terms of uh, giving me the results I want or not. Absolutely, and for me, it's the Descent and Imperial Assault, you know, the games we're talking about today. I really like the custom dice because they give you so much information in such an easy-to-digest manner. Yeah, and I would say uh, Sword and Sorcery's dice 
work pretty well. I think they might have just a few too many symbols compared to Descent or Imperial Assault, so it's a little bit harder to get the full picture of what's going on. But they still, uh, they definitely function well and are pretty quick to resolve while still giving you a lot of different results. Well, and actually, the more I think about it, Battle Lore and Mice and Mystics have a really neat system where in Mice and Mystics you roll, and if you're shooting from range, you're looking for bows. If you're fighting in melee, you're looking for swords. And if it has shields on it, it means you block. And so that's kind of neat because it's very obvious and intuitive what the dice results mean. And in Battle Lore, it's very similar. You're rolling dice. They have the three different colors of enemies. And based on what color enemy you are or attacking, I can't even remember at this point. It's been a while since I've played. Then it's either a hit or a miss based on, you know, who you are or who you're and who you're attacking. Sure, although I will say the one I have some trouble with is uh, Mice and Mystics. Not because of any of the stuff you said, but because we also have the cheese side, which is sort of the miss side. And I don't know if you remember from when we used to play, but if you get those cheese results, then it, uh, for the enemies, it actually accelerates when the scenario automatically ends in your loss. And if you just have a few unlucky rolls where you get a ton of cheese, then you're going to lose automatically and not have enough time to complete the scenario. Which I always found to be a problematic design decision, but doesn't have anything to do with uh, the custom dice themselves. It's just uh, how that result for enemies is used and how it can like accelerate the game in a way that is outside your control. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, Mike, final thoughts? Yeah, so I think if you have a good reason to use custom dice and you already have a publisher who's going to go for them, or if they're even a flashy mechanic that might help to sell a publisher... Go for it, as long as you can make the icons clear and easy for people to understand so that the game is actually potentially faster instead of slowed down. But if you're a new designer, probably selling to smaller publishers, and especially if you can find a way to use classic dice in your game without needing that more expensive custom version, then just go for it. They're certainly not necessary in most games, Even some of the games we mentioned that we enjoyed the custom dice, there was probably some way that's still pretty clean to use classic dice. So if it's it's an impediment to your game getting published, please don't even consider them. Just use the simpler way and move on. One, I don't think it's a bad idea to uh, approach a publisher with both concepts in mind, right? Say, okay, these are the cool custom dice I created for this game, but you could use a normal D6 for this as well, and this is how you can do it. And so I do think the other thing I'm going to add to what you said, because I agree complete with everything you said, the other benefit for me is the thematic integration. When I see hit symbols and I see, you know, surges and I see things like that, it's an immediate level of excitement, much more so than, all right, what's a one or two do again? And having to look it up, it's that extra step, it's that extra time it takes to look something up. I think whatever dice system you use, as long as you can remove that as best as possible, that's probably the best way to go. I I mostly agree with you, although I I do think there's just as much excitement in games where it's really obvious that a six is great and a one is terrible. So if you roll and you get all fives and sixes, it's, it's a huge rush. And if you roll and get all ones and twos, it can be absolutely crushing. And I think whether the dice are custom or not, that's that's almost a function of the dice rolling that you already mentioned is an awesome thing, more than it is a function of just the custom dice themselves. I totally agree. All right. So uh, thank you all for listening. 
Please tune in in a couple of weeks. We should have uh, a special guest, a returning guest, I should say. Colin from One Stop Co-op Shop. He was with us for Spirit Island, and he should be coming back to discuss Gloomhaven. And, man, I hope I have my game by then, although I guess we're still uh, (laughs) waiting for some of the U.S. container ships to land with uh, the second printing Kickstarter shipments. But we'll see what happens. We've certainly played it enough whether we get our new copies or not. All right, so thanks for joining us again, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Have a good one. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-OpCast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at MVPBoardGames at gmail.com. All right, everybody, I have a little bit of a treat for you this week. We didn't really have any funny bloopers, so instead of bloopers, I am adding our Salvation Road song. So a little bit of context to this. There was just a few days left in the Salvation Road Kickstarter campaign. We just needed a few more backers to get over the edge and fully fund the game, and so Mike came up with this song. Now, after a retail release, we didn't have this problem. It's actually sold out pretty much in distribution right now. There are a few copies left on Amazon, but at the time, we were really struggling to get those last few backers, so Mike came up with a great idea, and this is the song that came out of it. I will also have the link to this YouTube video listed in the show notes. Out of the ruins Games about zombies Can't make the same mistake this time We are the gamers Who love Mad Max and Fallout We are the ones they left We just want a great game that feels fun and fast, fast. For solo or co-op, we want to have a blast. We just need a few more backers. We just need to find that way home. Then we all can have fun playing Salvation Road. We have found someone we can rely on. We have the greatest fans out there. Love and compassion are all around us. Our backers rock the most, I swear. And they want a great game that feels fun and fast, fast. For solo or co-op, they want to have a blast. We just need a few more backers. We just need to find that way home. That we all can have fun playing Salvation Road. So what do we do with our lives? 
Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>